Jimmy Murphy, Pierre McGuire here for another edition of the Eye Test on the Sick Podcast Network. Turn up your volume. Because you're about to listen to the Sick Podcast. The Eye Test with Pierre McGuire and Jimmy Murphy. The Stanley Cup winning Colorado Avalanche. And after 22 years, Raymond Marsh! The Sickest NHL Podcast. It's going to be sick. Hey, back here for another edition, another week of the eye test. Going to be a shortened week here with the holidays upon us. We will be mm-hmm. doing it today and Wednesday, but no podcast on Friday or a week from today, obviously on Christmas Day. And speaking up here, happy holidays to you and yours. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's starting to hit me now. But I don't know if it's something you get older. It doesn't hit you as early. You can tell me, but I mean, like it's starting to hit me now. It is the holidays. So happy holidays to everybody out there. I hope you are able to enjoy time with your family uh, at this time of the year. I would agree, Jimmy. Happy holidays to everybody out there. Enjoy your families and friends and stay safe. And more than anything else, make sure it doesn't snow too much. (laughs) Yeah. Or stay out of this hurricane that I currently find myself in here in uh, the Boston area. Uh, 65 mile an hour winds, Pierce. You might hear them gusting here. Kind of waiting for that tree across the street to fall, but we'll get through it. <laughs> yeah. It is crazy. But anyhow, uh, look, a lot of stuff. Uh, speaking of hurricanes, we'll touch on them in a little later. I did want to ask you something about them, uh, mm-hmm. some news about them today. But uh, let's look back at last night, Pierre, and, and just some of the games. Uh, you know, one that I want to look at is the Vegas Golden Knights beating the Ottawa Senators 6-3. Uh, to three. Uh, the DJ Smith watch is on again in Ottawa. And look, I know how, mu- how much of a fan you are of him, but it does seem like, you know, something, something's got to be coming down the pike here soon because they were starting to pick it up a bit. They seemed like they were playing a better two-way game, but now they're just a mess again on the ice pier. What's been your thoughts on the Senators the last few games? Well, they've lost their last four. They're going into Arizona. Uh, then they go into Colorado, then they come home, and on Saturday night they play against Pittsburgh. It's not an easy schedule at all. Um, I feel terribly for the coaching staff, especially DJ. Uh, he at front and center of all of this. Um, they've got Jacques Martin now there as a consultant. He's traveling with the team right now. So as much as I'm friendly with Jacques and I really appreciate and respect what he's done in his career, that's not easy, I think, for the coaching staff to have to go through as well. Um, and it just seems like they can't get over the hump in the second period. They'll play a solid first period, Jimmy. They'll do some really uh-huh. nice things in the third period, but their second periods just aren't very good. Um, the, the goaltending has not been stout enough, and I think that's a bit of an issue too. I, I know everybody wants to blame the coach, but there's still this is a team. I don't think the expectation was managed properly in the offseason, and because of that, the expectation became too high. And now you're seeing what's happening. A lot of people are getting real angry. And and probably, based on the messaging that was out there, they probably should be angry. Yeah, and, and look, I, I know you're you're restricted as to what you can say, but I'll, I'll, I'll say it here. And, I, you know, earlier today, uh, uh, I think it was TSN 1200, the Ottawa station there, they tweeted out, describe the Ottawa Senators in one word right now. And I said, Dorian. That would be my word because I, I, I think that, Look, he did some great things, but like you just said, uh, he he put a team together that they built up as a contender when they just weren't there yet. And they're not the only ones, Pierre, right? I mean, they're not the only ones in the NHL that have done this. It's it's just the way it goes because you got the bottom line is you got to make your owner happy. You got to sell tickets. You got to get people back in the seats. And we've seen it in Buffalo as well. I mean, these are, these are two teams. That I think, and and look, I'm going to include myself into buying into that message that was sent. So I'm guilty of it as well. But I think this is these are two teams uh, that a lot of people jumped the gun on, and and that's tough. Like you said, that's tough on a coaching staff because they're not the ones building those expectations. They're not the ones constructing the roster. They yeah. just get what they're dealt with and they coach. That's their job. And I, I think from everything I hear. You know, DJ's done a good job of getting his message out to the team. It's it, it, At some point, it becomes up to the players to uh, apply it and, and persevere. But, you know, unfortunately in this business, as we've already seen, what, three times this season, uh, it's, it's not usually the players that pay the price. It's the coach. 
You know, that's absolutely true. And if you look at it, and a lot of general managers are copycat guys, this is how it works in all sports, not just hockey. Um, I think it works in all sports that way. Look at what's happened with the Minnesota Wild since Billy Guerin made the coaching change. Under John Hines, they've played nine times. They've won seven out of nine games. They've played fantastically well, and a lot of those were on the road, by the way, um, mm -hmm. in Western Canada, which is not an easy place to go, especially one of the games they played in Vancouver and then had to travel back, I believe, to play in Edmonton. So they lose an hour, and it's a back-to-back -back against a rested team with an hour or less. I mean, that, that's not easy to do. So you look at what's gone on in Minnesota, and I think a lot of people are saying, hmm, that worked out pretty well when they made the coaching change there. Uh, I'm not saying that has to happen in Ottawa. But here's the one thing I would say. Brady Kachuk had a very strong quote after the game last night. We know we're going into Arizona. I'm paraphrasing now. We better play our best game of the year. Uh, it's do or die. Those are his words. That, those are direct words. It's do or die. Does that mean on the season when they haven't even got to 30 games yet, or does that mean on the coach? You know, that's that's an interesting thing. Um and Brady is a guy that wears his heart on his sleeve. He is an unbelievable competitor. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens um, before and after the game with Arizona. Well, you know, it's, I'm glad you brought up Brady, too. And I, uh, forgive me for saying there was a great – you got in a toe-to-toe -to -toe heavyweight battle. Yeah, I forget Travis the guy Tucker. Yes, yeah, thank you. Good. Any relation to Darcy? No. Okay, so. he fought like him. Uh, I'll tell you what, Darcy. Darcy was one tough son of a gun, oh, yeah. and, and a champion guy and a champion player. Really, yeah. Uh, I spent a lot of time with Darcy early in his career. And I'm a big fan, big big. Yeah, fan. I like him a lot. Um, but no, good. You know, so he is wearing his heart and sleeve on the ice. There, he's done everything he can. You could tell that fight was pure. You know, let's go, boys. Let's get her going here, and and it, it still didn't work. So it's you, you can see. I don't think he's taking a – my impression is he's not taking a shot at the coach. He's more taking a shot at his teammates. Probably. But I, I don't know. I mean, how much is it going to get through? So we'll see what happens there. I don't think, you know, from every, by all accounts, I don't think Donnie Grenau is in any, you know, danger in Buffalo in terms of a coaching change there. But something's got to be done soon there. But, look, those are two things to monitor as we go on here. Of course, you know, there could be some moves made this week, Pierre. Hearing a lot of talk that uh, about some goalies. Yeah. Uh, that are, you know, potentially on the market right now. Um, you saw the the Carolina, that's what I wanted to get to, speaking of the mm -hmm. Hurricanes. Uh, they went out today and signed their second goalie this season, they've done this with, signed Aaron Dell to a, mm -hmm. a PTO there. So they're trying to find, you know, ways to get around their cap issues and solve their goalie issues. But uh, sooner or later, I think we're going to see something fall on the trade market here, Pierre. The one thing is we got to remind our listeners that, uh, in two days, the NHL Ross holiday roster freeze mm -hmm. does set in. That goes to the 27th. So I really wouldn't expect anything in the next 48 hours, but it's something to, to keep an eye on, eh? Yeah, no, I think that's fair, Jimmy. I really do. The other thing, too, is you look at Edmonton and the expectation. We're talking about managing expectations. And I think the one thing, if you look at Edmonton, is are they in the goalie hunt? They probably are. Uh, but we'll see how that can all play out for them. But I, Arundel uh, is a hardworking, industrious veteran type player. The other player that they brought in and that didn't work out, obviously, was Yaroslav Halak. I was a bit surprised by that. I thought Yaro would do relatively well there, but probably just couldn't get it going for whatever reason. Uh, but Arundel's a guy that understands the position and he works hard at it and he's got a lot of pride. So we'll see. Um, how it all plays out for him and for Arizona or for uh, Carolina. You know, Jimmy, it's an interesting time of the year because you correctly talked about the roster freeze. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know how much people really pay attention to that, but after the roster freeze is over, um, you got until the trade deadline. And for a lot of teams, a lot of teams understand now where they are. You know, some mm -hmm. teams are at the 30 game mark, some are at the 25 game mark, and they're starting to understand where they are as a group. And I would expect because of the parity in the league, we're going to see earlier deals than maybe we've seen in a very long time. I'm with you. And of course, a lot of teams had their scouting meetings uh, earlier, you know, this month uh, in the last couple of weeks up here, one team that must be having a ton of meetings, just trying to figure it out is the Pittsburgh Penguins. And mm -hmm. look, Kyle Dubas can say that that game didn't have extra meaning all he wants, but I don't believe it for one bit. That was a hard divorce between him and the Toronto Maple Leafs. He wanted that game. There was money on the board, I'm sure. 
uh, for the Penguins to go into Toronto and get that win. And they get shellacked seven and nothing on Saturday night. And, you know, this comes a few days after he, what some people might call the kiss of death, but I don't think it was the case in this situation after he gave uh, a vote of confidence to head coach Mike Sullivan. But look, Pierre, I, I covered Mike Sullivan in his early days when he coached the Bruins. I know Mike. I like him. I think he's a great coach. He's accomplished a ton in his career. But let's call a spade a spade right now. We talk about a team not responding to a coach. The Penguins aren't responding right now. And this is a team in complete disarray after an offseason that brought about a lot of hope. Well, let's remember, that was a team last year that didn't make the playoffs for the first time in Sidney Crosby's career. And that's unheard of in Pittsburgh. Um, this is a team that is definitely not measuring up to the expectation that was presented when Kyle Dubas was hired uh, and they traded for Eric Carlson um, and they did some pretty significant offseason signings. I think when you really think about it, um, some of them are injured right now. Some are like Nola Chari is an important part of that team. Uh, he's injured right now. Lars Eller's not injured, but he was an important part of rebuilding the bottom half of the forward roster. So again, um, there's some issues there in Pittsburgh. There's no question. I don't think this is a reflection on Mike Sullivan or his staff. I know the power play has labored unbelievably. They've really struggled. But again, uh, you know, are you redundant by having Carlson and Latang on your roster? Probably so. Um, you know, when Crosby's running the power play from the half wall, it really works out well for them. When he's not, it's not nearly as good. So there's so many different issues in Pittsburgh right now. But here's the one thing I would tell you, Jimmy, and I'm pretty comfortable saying it to you. The Pittsburgh Penguins were not a playoff team last year. And I wasn't sure in the offseason when the moves they made that they'd be a playoff team this season. And yep. starting to look like that right now. So now this is one of the teams you correctly talked about, you know, the roster freeze and then moving forward. This is one of the teams that I think if they're not going a lot better by maybe the end of December, I think they might be one of the first teams to do something significant. Because I, if they don't make the playoffs this year, that's a pretty significant indictment that last summer was a waste. Well, and it's interesting, you know, I agree with you completely on Carlson too. And it's interesting. I talked to, I know a lot of people in the media that cover that team for a while and are in there. And, you know, the, the common thread I get from them is he just doesn't seem like a fit both on and off right now, the ice. And this was people telling me this for about the last two weeks. And then you see after that game on Saturday, Carlson calling his teammates out. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm putting two and two together. I'm like, if, if there's some kind of division and he's not, fitting in properly in that dress room. And now he's gone out and called the team out. How's that going to go over? I mean, yeah. I don't, this is something to watch as we go on there. Um, you know, cause let's face it. I mean, this is still Sidney Crosby's team. Uh, and I don't know how that's going to blow over there. So that's something to keep an eye on as we go forward. That's really a smart statement from you. And here's one thing I would share in terms of Pittsburgh penguin lore I was there when Mario Lemieux was there, but I was also there when Ronnie Francis and Ulfie Samuelson and Brian Trotche and Kevin Stevens and Joey Mullen were there, all amazing leaders. But mm -hmm. everybody knew it was Mario's team. So they respected that part of it. And I think that maybe at some point um, somebody's going to have to, if they haven't already explained to certain people within the organization in Pittsburgh, this is Sydney's team. And they're going to have to understand there's a pecking order there. And, you know, I think if Genny Malkin's one of the guys that does understand that, I think Christopher Latang is another one that understands it. Um, I think Jeff Carter's another one that understands it. So, you know, you can look at it. Brian Russ does. Jake Gensel does. So I, I think it's important for people to understand the lore of the Pittsburgh Penguins when it comes to who's our spokesman and who's not, who establishes what's going on there. Um, but that's going to be an interesting thing to watch because I do think, Jimmy, you're touching on something that's really important. If they don't get going, they better make some significant moves quickly. And if they don't, then I can't see them making the playoffs. And here's one other thing, and it's not to browbeat Pittsburgh. Their prospect pool is not overly deep. Yeah. And so if people want to say, hey, you know, we're looking down the road at the future – they can't say what Montreal can say. They can't say what Detroit can say. They can't say what Buffalo can say. Those yeah. teams all have legitimate depth in their player pool. 
I can't say the same thing about Pittsburgh. I'm with you. All right. Well, let's switch gears here and talk about speaking of prospects, about handling prospects, first round prospects, highly touted prospects. And Pierre, I I came across this video and I actually just wrote about it at Boston Hockey Now of uh, Providence Bruins head coach Ryan Mugino uh, discussing the progression of one Fabian Lysel, who the Bruins took 21st overall in 2021. And is really a lot of fans waiting for him to pop here. But it doesn't seem like he's going to get an invite up to the Boston roster anytime soon based on this interview. Let's take a listen. When you look at a guy like Lysel, how, how have you seen him progress over, over his time here? Um, listen, there's a lot of good things he does. He, he's been creating anxiety with his feet. Um, but for Fabian, you know, he has to recognize that sometimes there's not always a play to be made. I think that's still in his growth. Um, he's learning that. It's not not saying that he won't, but you know the team game is is real important. And he's got you know five other guys there. I I you know I hate the play in the third period where he's trying to beat a guy one on four, and that's the stuff he's got to get out of his game. And it's it's recognizing that. And you know we're getting into year two here. He's got to start buying in, or he won't play for Jim Montgomery. That's a big part of you know Monty's game is is the team game and and building the team game and and. A lot of that is possession. You can't, you can't necessarily chip the puck, get it back, uh, expand, and hit the weak side D. You need five other guys to be a part of that, and you have to be connected and a willingness to, to play that way. And until until you do, then you know you're out of here. You're not in the American League. Then you're you know you're Jim Montgomery's problem. But until then, he's got to start. He's got to start building that into his game. Ooh, mm-hmm. he didn't mince any words there, did he, Pierre? No, I didn't, but I think that was probably endorsed by upper management. Usually, and not always, but usually the head coach in the American Hockey League won't stray from the message from the people above him. And Mm -hmm. so I'm sure Donnie Sweeney and and probably Jimmy Montgomery said, you know what, it's time to maybe punch the kid in the pants a little bit and get his attention. Um, Fabian Lysel is an amazingly skilled player. I've watched him a lot over the course of his career, whether it was in Sweden or playing with the Vancouver Giants or obviously playing in the American Hockey League. Really super talented kid. There's no question about it, Jimmy. I've had the same kind of discussion with players from my past when I was coaching either as an assistant coach or a head coach in the minors or a head coach in the NHL. When kids are listening, they'll shake their head. And sometimes when they're nodding their head, they're not listening. Sometimes when they're nodding their head, they are listening. And then you'll see it in practice. You'll see it in the game. All that stuff you work on with them, whether it's with tape or on the ice, they're, it's performing. You're seeing it. And there are other times when they just nod their head and they're clearly not tuned in and not listening. I think we're getting to the frustration level for the coaches in the American Hockey League with this. But I will tell you this. This kid's amazingly talented. He's got a lot of talent upside. The yes. problem is it's putting it all together so that he can be an everyday NHL player. Well, you know, we're going to get, by the way, we haven't even mentioned it. We're pretty excited coming on very shortly here. We'll be our featured guest of the day, Anaheim Ducks head coach, Greg Cronin, will be joining us in a second here. And, and, you know, I think he's a perfect example to kind of go with what we're talking about. here. That's why when I saw that, I just said, well, this is perfect to bring up today because, look, Greg's dealt with a lot of kids coaching at the college levels, coaching at the AHL level, and coaching at the pro level like yourself. And he, Greg is... A hard-nosed guy, we'll say, um, but he's he's learned over the course of his career how to balance that and when to press the buttons and when not to. So I'm sure he's been in situations like Ryan Mugino there, and we'll, we'll talk to him about that in a second when we get it on. And I think, you know, that's, that's kind of a thing that I think Pierre, over the last five to ten years, has become even more important, I think, is knowing when to say things like Mugino just said there knowing when the right time and the wrong time is to press those buttons both privately and publicly because it, it's a different world we're in now. It's a, it's just, it's a yeah. different uh, atmosphere and culture in the NHL. And it's not a knock on anybody. It's just, it's just a fact of life. And I, I get, I'm very interested over the last few years, really paying attention to that. I maybe didn't do it as much in, in earlier in my career, but now I really do is watching you know, quote unquote, who some people might like to call old school coaches, balance that approach with the new generation of players, Pierre. 
Well, one of the things that's really important, and I think Greg can speak to it, Greg Conan can speak to it as well or better than anybody. Now, because of the hard salary cap, teams have to rush players in because it's a cheaper workforce. The younger mm-hmm. guys work cheaper. And so part of it that wasn't really apparent when I was coaching or not nearly as much is developing players at the NHL level. Usually that development went on, whether they were major junior players or college players, and then they'd spend time in the American Hockey League. We talked to Billy Guerin about it. When you were part of the Devils, you went to Lou Yu, which was going to the American Hockey League because of Lou Lamorello and the way he cultivated players, and it really worked well. But now with the cap, it's changed. So coaches at the NHL level have to cultivate players that probably aren't always ready and that's a fine line to walk. And I think Greg Cronin's as good or better than anybody when it comes to talking about this. Yeah, we're just having some technical difficulties right now. I will, uh, I'm just going to text him quick here, Pierre, uh, to tell him to log back in. Um, yeah, you know, and it's, it's interesting because Cronin, for some reason, like I just talked to you about the quote unquote old school coach, right? Yeah. He got pegged in that category. And, you know, I remember like looking at it saying, Hey, but look at all the guys he sent to the Colorado Avalanche's NHL roster. The guys mm-hmm. that came in uh, it, and went into that roster via him uh, in Colorado with the AHL team, the Colorado Eagles. He was really, for the last few years, he was a very underrated AHL coach, Pierre. Well, he's been underrated for a while. You look at what he did when he was in Bridgeport. You look at what he did when he was at the University of Maine. Look at what he did as a head coach at Northeastern University. Uh, he won the Bob Cullen Award as Coach of the Year. I mean, that that's high praise indeed um, for the late Bob Cullen, who was a tremendous coach, a guy that I used to coach against. So I've been a fan of, of Greg's for a long time. I actually recruited against him uh, over the years. So, um, and I, when I was coaching, he was coaching too. So known him a long time, and I think he's tremendous. And I think – for this subject in particular, I'm not sure we could find somebody that maybe has as much intel as he would have. Well, we'll try and get him on right now. As we said, just having a couple technical difficulties, looping him in. And here, I want to look at that team right now. And I know there's a couple guys that you want to you want to mention to Greg. And one of them is a defenseman that you, you don't think is getting enough love right now in terms of rookie players in the NHL, eh? Yeah, Pavel Minchikov, there's no question. I mean, as a 19-year-old to see, and I know there's fanfare for a lot of great players around the league, but this this guy can really play, Jimmy. And I I would just tell you that uh, you watch him play against New Jersey last night and the way he jumps into the cycle, the way he jumps in the rush, the way he defends, the way he can run the power play from the back end. I mean, he, this is a really special player, and his upside is massive. All right, well, let's bring in the head coach of the Anaheim Ducks right now, Greg Cornyn, join us. No camera, but we get to hear his great Irish voice. Crow, how you doing, buddy? I'm good, thanks. Good to have you. I got Pierre McGuire here with me as well, Greg. Hi, Pierre. Hello, Coach. How are you? Good. And, uh, you know, before we get into asking you some questions about your current team, uh, Pierre has told us about some old wars uh, that you guys had back in the day when you were a player, you and your brother Donnie. Uh, playing for Colby. Uh, Pierre, why don't you ask him about that? No, I mean, I used to go watch the Bowdoin-Colby games all the time. And, you know, whether it was Sid Watson coaching or Terry Mahar coaching at Bowdoin, and, you know, you see the Colby mules come down and play uh, against Bowdoin. And those those Cronin brothers were really popular in Brunswick, Maine, weren't they, Greg? Well, it's <laughs> funny. You go back all the way back then, and there was no hockey east, right? So college hockey was so different. There was an ECAC division one, two, and three, and the Colbys and the Bowdens and the Merrimacks and the Salem States and the unions. Um, I'm missing one Lowell, all these teams that are, you know, kind of division one now were in that bracket and Plattsburgh out where you played right in that, in that New York area, they were all like, that was really good hockey, rough hockey. And um, the Colby Bowden rivalry has been around for probably, I don't know, 80 years or something. And those games were bloodbaths. I think your brother was at, at Bowden, right? He was. He yeah. was. Chippy yeah. games. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I told Pierre I knew you well, Greg. He brought that right up. It's good stuff. Um, but, Greg, let's get to the current times right now. And and, and first off, you know, I, I know it's probably hard to put in a few words, but so far, how's the experience been as the head coach of the Anaheim Ducks? Well, from a personal perspective, two things kind of, were were challenging for me is the time management part of it on a rebuild. Um, you know, I, I have a, you know, Newell Brown had come back with Craig Johnson, Mike Stuthers 
what a lot of listeners probably know, Mike and I coached against each other in the American League like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. He's battling cancer. Um, so he's kind of been um, kind of as an advisory role, helping out with the San Diego Gulls, trying to build a bridge strategically in terms of development with the young guys into the uh, the NHL guys. And then I, I brought in uh, Brent Thompson, who's a really good developmental coach, been in Bridgeport for a long time. He's the son of Tage Thompson uh, for the Sabres. And uh, I've known Brent for a long time. So uh, my focus was trying to get everybody on the same page and identifying these developmental uh, areas that we need to focus on to allow these guys. I mean, we've got seven guys that are 22 years and younger. Mm-hmm. We've got we've got nine guys that are 23 years and younger. So trying to accelerate the development of those guys takes a lot of time. Um, and then the other thing that I was surprised at, I had heard about it, like Randy Kyle and I coached in Toronto together, and he kept talking about, the disadvantage playing in the West, and I don't know if you have a coach in the West, PA, but I think you're in the East most of your career. Yeah. It, it, it's a humongous disadvantage, just the traveling, the amount of time spent on airlines, airplanes, and then when you get back, you waste a whole day. So when you add, add the practices that you lose because mm-hmm. of the travel, it's above 30. Mm-hmm. So coming from the American League, and, and in Colorado, we had to fly everywhere. But we still had a bunch of practice times built in in a 72-game schedule. And, you know, you got the PA, so they've got days off that are needed. It, yeah. it, it, it's it's actually uh, way more challenging than I thought it would be. Pierre? You know, it's interesting you can bring this stuff up, Greg, because I have so much respect for the guys in the West. When I was doing TV, I was doing it in the West and in the East, and just the time zone travel was murderous. It really was. One of the things that's happened this year that I find fascinating about your group, Leo Carlson, the second pick overall from last summer's draft, you're kind of doing a load management thing on him. Are you doing that based on your own schedule or using other people's resources? How are you actually identifying how to do the load management on Leo Carlson? So uh, Pat Verbeek has got a a really good relationship with Mike Bowers. And Mike is a strength and conditioning guru. He was uh, with Rich Rodriguez at West Virginia mm-hmm. uh, in football when they really moved up the, the food chain in terms of success. And it parlayed into a relationship with the University of Michigan when uh, Rich Rod went there, if you remember that uh, football mm-hmm. yep. period of time. Well, Mike Mike was with him. And then Mike established a strength and, condition, strength and conditioning sports science center outside of Ann Arbor. And Pat, Pat had met him then. And then, he has a relationship with the Red Wings and a bunch of other NFL teams. So that was kind of collaboration between Pat and Mike trying to manage Leo, who's who's an 18-year-old kid going on 14 <laughs> physically. He's very young looking. Um, he's still growing. Um, and seriously, he's his growth plates are still open. He's probably going to grow another inch or two, and he's he hasn't really filled out. So I think – They've collaborated to, to create a program that I think that's going to put Leo in the best path to success uh, physiologically. I think that's just so fascinating. And thank you so much for answering the question the way you did, Greg. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was you talked about the development process you're going through as a coach with these young players. It wasn't always like that in the NHL. Young players had to spend their time in the American Hockey League before they got force-fed the National Hockey League. How much extra pressure is that on a coaching staff to have to develop young players in the NHL rather than see them getting developed in the AHL? It's funny. It's ironic because my first – I went to the Islanders in 98, and Mike, Mike Milbury hired me. And I had, I had been with the U.S. National Program. We had just started that program in 96, uh, me, my, uh, Jeff Jackson, and Bob Mancini. And at the time, it was a radical thing. The U.S. NTDP was like an idea that we had had. We sat around a table with the help of USA Hockey and designed a schedule. And my team was the 80 group um, that played in the OHL. And people don't remember that, but our team played, I think it was 30 games in the OHL. I was joking to Pete DeBoer about that in the meetings <laughs> in Chicago about we were like the Christians being fed to the Lions in the Roman Coliseum. We were so young and immature. And they had a bunch of, you know, heavyweights. The fighting was popular back then. So, for God's sakes, we had guys taking 20-second shifts. They were so scared, right? And when they were playing at, like, Belmont Hill, they were taking two-minute shifts, right? So that, that was my first kind of window into developing players at the grassroots level. And then, ironically, I go to New York in 98 with Mike. And back then, so we had coached the under-18s, the World Juniors, and the World Championships. And I had met Mike and Gordy Clark, who a lot of – 
people remember Gordy Farnley. He's an unbelievable scout. And the Islanders were in a rebuilding uh, program at the time. But we had some older guys, Ziggy Palfi, and um, I can remember uh, Robert Reichel and Scott Lachance, Joe Sacco. We had a lot of older guys, but it wasn't working. So we went young the next year. And it was a Dano Chara, Timmy Conley, Taylor Pilot, Rafi Torres, Ricky DiPietro. I'm missing guys, okay? So that was a year that we had, and Roberto Luongo was in that mix as well. We had an unbelievably young group, and that was just, we, we were barely surviving every night. So then that, that was like a one-off thing, a once-in-a-generation. And lo and behold, you know, I'm back in the NHL, whatever, how many years later, 25 years later, and I've got a similar situation with the Ducks. And yes, it is a very different dynamic. It's a challenge coaching. Again, it goes back to what I said five minutes ago about time management. You know, you don't want to overload these kids because the game's happening fast as it is. So it's been a balancing act. Pierre, uh, we actually, I, I don't know if you were able to hear it before you came on, um, but we were playing a clip kind of about this uh, from Ryan Mugino, the coach in Providence right now, uh, just talking about Fabian LaSalle, and he's struggling to buy into the team game. Um, and it's, I, I guess my question to you would be, do you see that with the young NHLers right now? Is it hard for them? Because look, this culture we're in right now is so catered to, you know, YouTube and Twitter and TikTok and all the fancy plays and the, and the lacrosse goals and all that. It is it difficult sometimes to get the kids to realize, hey, that stuff's not always going to fly. It's going to be once in a blue moon when you can pull that off. You got to just follow this. You got to follow this system. What's that been like for you? I don't have any problem with it, to be honest with you. Like, we've had a, you know, I've seen the poster child for that is Trevor Zegras. He's only yeah. had like eight games because of injury, but he bought in right away. He's a great kid. Um, right. You know, I think our staff, we, we coach in a way that, you know, it's interesting when you when you peel back the layers of coaching, right? There's a lot of branding that goes on. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of promotional stuff that goes on. That's part of it, too. You know, the next generation is about branding and promotion. Mm-hmm. And there's two angles you can look at it, right? You can coach. You can coach to a player's strengths or you can coach to his weaknesses, right? So at the end of the day, what slices right through that is here's the expectation, here's the standard. And if you don't play to the standard, you're going to hear about it. Whatever your, whatever your innate talent is, that has to be integrated into what the team standard is. And if that message is consistent, you, you, you find that you don't really have to wrestle with players about getting them to do it. There are guys that are going to step outside the footprint because they are creative like Trevor but ultimately, they know if you can if you can basically recruit them into the mindset that everything we do here is for the team, they won't stray too far off the grid. Good stuff. Here. You know, Coach, everybody's part of a coaching tree and a coaching legacy. Mine is obviously Joe Marsh and Scotty Bowman. Those are the guys that really looked after me and helped me progress as a coach. What tree, what mentorship group are you a part of? It started with Sean Walsh, and, um, and it's a sad, Pierre, like, these kids don't know who he is. I mean, he died in September of 2001, right after 9-11. And, um, and I talk about this a lot. Grant Stenbrook is still alive. He just texted me last night. He's 88 years old. He's got a memory like an elephant. He remembers yep. everything. Yep. And those two guys, for a guy like me from Boston, I was I stumbled into coaching because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I, I knew I could get a, uh, an MBA at Maine with the graduate assistant programs they had back then. And I didn't really plan on following a coaching path. I wanted to get into business. And I growing up and you know, James knows this. There's a lot of a lot of the Arlington people were all Southie, Dorchester people that had moved out during the bus and there wasn't a lot of role models. James late dad was a lawyer, went through Vietnam War, and he was like that generation was a, yeah. a tough generation. But we didn't my family didn't really have any like I don't want to I had role models, but they weren't professionally like um I don't know what you want to call them, white collar people. Um, you know, we were, my father was a custodian and my mother was a secretary and my, my uncle, my uncle Barry Cronin used to drive the Zamboni in Watertown from the arena to the package store to get his beers and then drive back to work. Okay. So, so, so I went to get a master's degree in business and lo and behold, I, I run into, you know, Sean Walsh and Grant Stanbrook and Bruce Crowder were there. And they, in, in the long answer to your question, Pia, they, they were so far ahead of their time. Grant with his development, Sean mm-hmm. with his talk about branding and promotion. And, yeah, you know, he was like uh, Bonham and Bailey at the circus. He could sell, you know, <laughs> ice to Eskimos. Right. And, and being around that, that group was really what motivated me and inspired me to get into coaching. 
Well, they made a good choice bringing you in. But, Jimmy, I just want to share this because Coach will know. Sean Walsh's two sons, one's the assistant coach for Blaze McDonald up at Colby, and the other mm -hmm. one now is for an assistant for Ben Gite at, at Bowden. So that Bowden-Colby thing's kicking in. And, you know, Coach talked about the ability of Sean Walsh, who I recruited against a lot back in the day, to sell snow to the Eskimos. There was a pretty good player there that's one of three freshmen to win the Hobie Baker, Paul Correa. And if you look at a map and go from Vancouver, British Columbia to Orono, Maine, there are a lot of college hockey teams between those two places that are pretty good. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how he ended up from Vancouver to the University of Maine. And that just speaks to the prowess of Sean Walsh. And I think Greg could speak to that as well. Well, and then Grant Stanbrook was a critical link in that, right? Grant yep. had the ability to really – do surgery on hockey, right? In a real meaningful way. Meaningful way. Like I, I joke around. Grant Stanbrook had guys uh, doing rollerblade work in the parking lot between Alphon Arena and the football stadium. Yep. He put a pole vault through the back windows and put bungee cords on the pole vault, and, and he'd drive his car down the parking lot and have guys do over speed straining with with shin pads on. I'm not kidding you. Wow. He was, he was taking guys. And out to the field on the other side of, I don't think it was College Avenue, and have them do sprints with a bungee cord loaded to the guy behind them. And then the guy behind them would, would basically, so you have resistance on one side, and the guy that had the bungee cord that anchored the resistance would, would slingshot behind him. And there's a, mon, a ton of stories. Remember Martin Robitaille, Pierre? Remember the 100%. Absolutely. So one of the bungee cords broke because Martin Mercier, another French guy, didn't hear him say, you know, slow down. So he kept going. The bungee cord no. snapped, and he lo he almost lost his his male anatomy on the on the coil back for <laughs> the bungee cord. <laughs> so we were doing all that stuff back then, but it actually was way ahead of its time. So. Hey, Jimmy, you know the first NHL coach I worked for was the late Badger Bob Johnson, and I can tell you right now, the one guy he talked about all the time was Grant Stanbrook, who worked for him at the University of Wisconsin. So I, I would agree with everything that Greg's talking about right now when it comes to hockey genius and legacy. Grant Stanbrook embodies all of that. That's great well, stuff. It's funny. Grant Stanbrook was talking about pre-battle information in 1990 or 1988. What he meant by that was before any play would address the puck, whether it's moving along the yellow or he's recovering a puck in a stalled battle, Grant was telling players to shoulder check multiple times so they could understand where the attack was coming from and what weaponry he was going to use to attack a player. And you, I heard that, as, and I think you played football too, Pierre. Like, I, I played football, and, um, and I, and I, and I um, played baseball, and obviously the, in my whole neighborhood, people were boxing, and James probably remembers the Murphys and the heavy bag in the garage there. Yeah. So all these integrated <laughs> sports things. You know, he's the first guy, and that was early in my career, that could actually take sport, different sports – and integrate them into events on the ice in hockey. And I was like, wow, like I never even thought about that as a player, but he was, he was teaching that stuff in 1988, which is unbelievable with all the sports science we have today. I agree. Totally it's, agree. Now it's commonplace. I mean, so many yes. things are made, so they're way ahead of the curve. I, I, I know uh, one thing we like to talk about here, you mentioned, you know, your coaching tree there, Greg, but also just along the way, you know, the, the curves your career has taken and, and just, you know, I know a lot of people don't know the journey you've had and how long it's been to get to where you are. So you just sort of talk about that and, and what kept you going through all those years. Well, I, I, it's funny. You have these moments. I'm 60 years old now. Right. And you, you, there's certain moments that I, I think really stay with you. And, uh, and Mike Milber used to say like you coach into a player's soul. Uh, people get into X's and O's and video and, you know, the motivational stuff. But he said that to me, uh, I remember in 98 when he hired me. And I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, I was like 34 or 35 years old. And I didn't play in the NHL. You know, I was a Division II hockey player. And, um, you know, I think probably one of my biggest strengths is my communication skills. Um, you know, I, I live in a, you know, my private life's a little bit different. I don't drink. I don't party I, I kind of have a different lifestyle and I would like to think that that lifestyle is fearless in terms of my approach dealing with certain things that have been in my family James you've seen it in our neighborhood with people dying from 
drugs and alcohol and everything else. So I've, I've, I've kind of tried to approach that world with a fearless, honest mentality. And, and uh, I remember working with Mike and I do, I gravitate towards, you know, confrontations, not in a real, in a negative way, but in a real healthy way. Again, talk about promotion and trying to deal with, um, you know, crisis head on instead of trying to like finesse your way through it. And I remember my first meeting in New York, we had Trevor Linden was, uh, was a penalty kill. I did the penalty kill in the 98. Robert Reichel was kind of a grumpy guy. He was on the penalty killing unit. We had Richard <laughs> Pilon, who was an animal. Yeah. Kenny Johnson was a nice guy, uh, but very, very confident. I remember doing a meeting and I tried to finesse a message into the meeting because I was a little intimidated. You know, here I am. Sergey named Chinov was like 39 years old and I was like 34. And yeah. I was doing a meeting on penalty kill and I tiptoed around a message that should, that needed more of a blunt message. I'll never forget, Mike takes me out after the meeting's over. He takes me in across the hallway. In the old Coliseum, I used to joke around that, you know, Bin Laden was probably hanging out and they were trying to find him. There was so many nothing crannies in there. So he takes me into one of these closets and he says, hey, Crow, he said, uh, what am I paying you? And I think at the time it was like $90,000. That was like my salary as an assistant coach. And he says, this is what I'm going to do. He goes, I want you to take $10,000 and buy yourself a car and drive home. Because if you're going to coach with like finesse and you're going to try and stick handle through the honesty part of the message. I don't want you here. I'll never forget that my knees almost buckled. Okay. And it was, it, it, he said the players, and then he finished it with the players. Don't give a shit where you played. They want to know that you care about them, that your message is coming from honesty and it's going to make them better the next game. I'll never forget that. I can still remember where I was when he said it. And that kind of, that was my, my coaching platform in the NHL as far as just being fearless and delivering a message. Because if they know you're prepared and that you care about them, they'll follow you. Um, that's yeah. one moment. Um, I think, you know, going through, like, Butch Goring was an incredibly bright mind. I mean, look at Butch. He probably weighs 145 pounds wet. You know, he's soaking wet. You hear the stories about Butch. He traveled on. Uh, did he drop? That, that was, there was there's a lot of gold there though that was spectacular. I think we got him back. We got him back. Yeah. Okay. So, so, back. So okay. Yeah. Butchie Butchie had a brilliant mind. You don't win a Con Smythe and win four Stanley Cups without being a smart player at his size. Mm. You think about Butchie was playing in the '70s and the '80s. The league was so tough back then, right? I mean, Pia, you were in Hartford back then. You know, Paul Holmgren, all those guys, how tough were those teams, right? Tough. And, and Butchie not only survived it, but he thrived in it as a small guy. So his IQ on the ice was phenomenal. And he could communicate things that I would thought, I saw something differently, and then Butchie would say, no, no, this is what happened. He was always right, okay? So just being able to understand the game through Butchie's eyes was a blessing for me. Step back from it. He was, his big thing was, Ask the player what he saw. And you think about it, because it's easy from the bench. It's a lot easier. The game's slower. The event doesn't happen quick. But Butchie was able to, you know, he'd say to me, just ask the player what he saw. And then you could go from that vision, and then you could make you, you could make him, you could be a part of what he saw. Instead of right. he's right and you're wrong, and you're right and he's wrong. I could go on and on. Laviolette was really good at being outside the box as a motivator. He'd come up mm -hmm. with different ideas. He was a team first guy, had good team events. You know, I saw that in Peter. I thought that was unique. And then, you know, fast forward. I mean, Jack Capuana was a, a player's coach. I think he was a bright, bright mind. He saw the game, I think, in a very, you know, some some players, uh, some coaches see the game emotionally. I think Jack was real mental, how he saw it. Randy Carlisle, a Stanley Cup winner. Uh, I think he was a guy that was a, a very direct guy, very honest. Um, Granny has a great sense of humor. The players don't see enough of it, but. I mean, I, I like Randy's, again, understanding of the game and, and I think the way he confronted players about his standards. Um, Ron Wilson, I think, Pia, you know Ron pretty well. He's around mm -hmm. a long time. He's, uh, again, a player's coach, used a lot of humor, outside-the-box relationships. So I think as a coach, you're a compilation of the experiences you're, you, you, know, you, you go through. And um, you know, I could go on and on. I've been around a long time and I've seen a lot of people, but those are just spitballing guys that I've seen and work with. This has been fascinating. I can't thank Greg enough for his time. Those yeah. are some fantastically good stories. Yeah, for sure. Well, Greg, well, Greg's got some great stories. You know, and by the way, Greg, uh, we should mention that a, a certain journalist here got his start thanks to you uh, on Long Island. So 
uh, back in those your first stint with the Islanders, Greg got me a job in the uh, PR department. I used to check all the the scouts in and all the uh, reporters. So that's how I got started. So, so the big answer? question today, though, Jimmy, is they're playing in Detroit tonight. Yep. How much is Pat Verbeek putting on the board to beat the Red Wings? <laughs> I don't know if Pat's got any money on the board tonight. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, Pat. I, I've never, I've never worked with a guy, probably outside of Grant Stanbrook and Sean Walsh, that works as hard as Pat does. Yeah. Like, I mean, he he was in New York, and he was down in Philly one night watching the game, driving up to Montreal to watch games. He drives everywhere to watch games. Um, he's a, a database of information for players. Um, he's got a plan. He doesn't care what people think. He's sticking to it. You know, he got a little criticism about this load management thing with Leo. And Pat doesn't care. This is where we're doing it. This is how we're going to do a rebuild. Mm-hmm. Um, I love talking to him about hockey. I mean, think about it, guys. He played, he's a, for me, he's a Hall of Fame caliber guy. He won a cup. He scored over 500 goals. He's played over 1,000 games. He has a pointy game as a player. Another guy, Pierre, that played in a league that was a rough and tough league that was, you know, fearless. Um, I mean, I, to me, I, I love talking about hockey. He just And he's another one that he sees the details. Like when he watches a game, and I'm sure you've been around these guys, both you guys, when you, you, you know, you, you see something from the bench, you see something ice level. And you ask the guy watching up above, did he see it? And yeah, he sees it and he sees the detail that went into the play that you're talking about. Yeah. And that's a gift. And Pat has that. Yeah. It's also a gift to a coaching staff that's enlightened. And your staff is uh, very enlightened. And I think that's great that you can all sing from the same songbook. It's fantastic. It's great. Yeah. I had a feeling you guys would hit it off. I mean, uh, Greg, uh, just the style. I got to meet Pat a couple of times and talk hockey with him up in, uh, in the press box at the garden and everything you just said is exactly what I noticed about him. So uh, you got a good, good thing going there and we appreciate you taking the time and listen, best of luck. We'll get you on again down the line and uh, keep, keep rocking my friend. Keep rocking. Yeah. Pierre, I got to tell you one footnote before I exit. So I get the last word in. Yeah. When I I was coaching the Islanders (laughs) and James was coming down as a neophyte journalist, right? You know, James is full of energy, right? He's bouncing off the walls. Okay. So my ex-wife and I, Carol, um, we we had rented a place down in Point Lookout, which is like, it's like a mini South Boston, okay? So it's 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 a wicked Irish Catholic neighborhood. It's got a little bit more money down than Long Beach does. There's a West End in Long Beach that's all Irish. So so James comes in and and he's going to live with Carol and I. So back then, coaches didn't make any money, right? So you're trying to make ends meet every week. So we're renting a place down in Point Lookout, a seasonal place, and we need an extra few bucks, so we bring James in. And James is allergic to cats. So James actually lives in the basement for about three days, and he almost dies from freaking cat allergies. <laughs> and then about – so then whatever, I move on, and like a couple of years later, James James could have ran for mayor down in Long Beach because he was spent half his nights in the bars down there with his little shillelagh on. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. oh, that's good. If this yeah. doesn't work out, James can run for some mayor, some mayor position in, in Boston somewhere. I'm <laughs> a Charlie McAvoy. There we go. There you go. Oh, that's good. See you guys. Good Thanks, Greg. Right. Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yeah. Have a good one. Thanks, Greg. Good stuff. <laughs> well, oh, I'm going to yeah. tell you one thing. He was tough too when he played. He was really yeah. tough. Those Bowden Colby things, those were a whole lot of nasty. There was like a triumvirate of teams. It was Bowden, it was Colby, it was Salem State. Eventually, uh-huh. Merrimack and Babson got involved in that too, and, and it, it was a whole lot of nasty. People forget that. I was coaching in it back then. I had just been released as a player, and um, those those games at that time, it was Division Two. There's no longer Division Two hockey in the NCAA and it, it was really, really tough. It yeah. Really it, tough. It's, it's very interesting Pierre, too, because I don't know where I was recently and maybe it was on Nesson and I, I heard them talking about referring to Providence as an ECAC school. Yeah. And I, I totally had forgotten that there was no hockey East originally. And like, so I'm like, what are they talking about? They're hockey East. And I, I thought the guy made a mistake. So I guess that's why. No, well, you know, BUBC, Providence, Northeastern, they were all part of the ECAC. Okay. And, then, and even UNH, UNH and UVM. I mean, 
UVM's a late add-on to Hockey East. They were, for the longest time, in the ECAC. I mean, when I was coaching at St. Lawrence back in the late 80s, one of our big competitors was UVM, and they had guys like John LeClaire on the team. Uh, we played them in the uh, we played them in the ECAC final in the Boston Garden. There was 15,000 people there. It was unbelievable. So, yeah, no, it's, it's amazing how college hockey's changed a lot, but – I can tell you that Cronin brothers were a whole lot of nasty when it came to playing college hockey. I told you the story about how they toughened me up and he mentioned it there too. So yeah, it was good stuff. Look, I, I think that team and, you know, we didn't, cause he's such a great storyteller. How great was that? That was, yeah, that was, that was gold. That was tremendous to listen to. And, you know, I think Greg too goes with our name in this podcast too. He's, he's the prototypical guy that goes by the eye test He's going to pay attention to analytics. He's going to pay attention to, you know, all the advanced stats and all that. But when it comes down to it, he's he's going on his hunch and on the eye test. And uh, that's why he is where he is. That's why he survived so long and finally got his shot in the NHL. And look, for coaches out there right now that, I, you know, you might be coaching in the East somewhere or, you know, in the middle of nowhere, don't give up. I mean, and Greg Cronin's a perfect example of why you don't give up, why you keep plugging along. And Pierre, you've been there yourself, so you know what it's like. No, it's 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 a character test. You just have to decide how bad you want to be part of it. And, uh, you know, I remember many times when, you, you know, you weren't staying in great hotels and the food wasn't exactly perfect and uh, the bus rides were pretty long, but you found a way to get through it. And I think that's an important part of it. It's part of the character test that analytics can never really measure, really can't. Yeah. Sure. Great stuff. Well, look, they're in good hands there. And Pat for B, because he said, I, agree. I knew they'd be a good fit together. So good for the Anaheim Ducks. And now uh, we hope all you Ducks fans out there enjoyed that and all you NHL fans as well. And Pierre, one more show before we break for the holiday. I think on Wednesday, let's talk some world juniors. What do you think? World junior be good. Be very I good. I've been led since, you know, since we came about the idea of having this podcast, I've been looking forward to that day because as many have told you that have been on here and many have always told you, like you got me into that, Pierre, you and Gord Miller. Uh, mm -hmm. Once they started broadcasting that here in the States uh, and it really took off and USA Hockey, of course, started to pick up, uh, I became a huge fan. So I'm really looking forward to previewing that. And I'll tell you, it's USA and Canada got some stacked squads, Pierre. So we'll break it all down on Wednesday. They do, and there's one little dark horse. So don't forget the hometown team. The Swedes are going to be very, very good. And they'll the be, revved up be very, very good. Turf, yep. so. For sure. Well, listen, for everyone out there, thank you to our production crew. Thanks to Greg Cronin, head coach of the Anaheim Ducks. Thanks to Pierre. I'm Jimmy Murphy. We'll talk to you on Wednesday on the Eye Test here on the Sick Podcast Network. And that's a wrap. Hope you don't miss us too much until next time. Follow the eye test with Pierre McGuire and Jimmy Murphy on YouTube, Facebook, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts.